Um, last week, we spent the entire uh, time of the message on the subject of suffering <clears throat> in order ultimately to kind of set the table for uh, for Paul to speak and say what he's going to say, not just on apostolic authority, which those of us who are converted believe that this, this letter is the Holy Spirit seeking to present the truth of the gospel and the truth concerning Jesus Christ to us. But Paul um, needs to have his um, uh, how do I want to say this? Paul needs his authenticity to be substantiated because of the position that he's in as he's writing this. Um, so he 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 has this almost it's almost a throwaway line um, that he puts in that has caused more ink to be spilled on more pages about the suffering of Christ and the suffering of Christians than I think he intended. Um, You have to reach the right conclusion about Christian suffering or you're going to believe the wrong people when it comes to the gospel. Because from outward appearances, those who are not qualified to speak and proclaim the truth of God's word get the attention. And those who are qualified, by and large, do not, because from, from an external perspective, they don't seem as wise, they don't seem as endearing, they don't seem as authoritative. Um, Paul was not much to look at physically, and he uh, struggled with some physical maladies that I think probably would have made it hard to believe that this is God's man to the Gentiles from a human perspective. So we looked at the fact of Christian suffering. um, And I told you that suffering is not something that happens to us. Suffering is something that happens for us, um, that we are served by it. And we looked at three things God is doing in the midst of our suffering. First, trials are the furnace in which your faith is purified, right? And we remember that from James 1. Um, We remember that, too, from from Galatians. Um, Second, we saw that trials are the means by which God prunes us so that we can bear more fruit. So like right there, those two things tell you that trials and suffering are not always an indication of God's displeasure. It's not that you're being disciplined. We shouldn't take for granted that that's what suffering means, that we're being disciplined. And then third... We should. Hebrews 12 talks about God chastens all those who are indeed his children, those who are his sons. If you're not receiving any discipline or chastisement from God, it's because you're an illegitimate child. You're not actually a believer. Um, So those three things have this in common, that all of them relate to the, the form, the function of, of you and your faith as a Christian, right? Those things all relate to you. So what my suffering is because I'm being um, chastened or my suffering is because I'm being pruned that I might be more fruitful uh, because there are things in my life which are good things in and of themselves, but they become ultimate things and God needs to remove them so that I can not have a heart filled with idolatry. Or I'm suffering because I need my faith to be purified and strengthened. 
What Paul's talking about is something else entirely, and, and that's that suffering might be not about you at all, but your suffering might actually be about somebody else. Your suffering may actually be for the benefit of others. So he makes this statement in verse 24, <clears throat> I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Now, if you're a preacher or a teacher of the scriptures, you find yourself faced in Colossians 1.24 with an impossible task. I don't believe it's the job of the preacher to tell everybody how hard his job is, okay? That's not what I'm doing. The good shepherd doesn't do that. But the reality is this. That's a tough verse because it's been, it's been translated from Greek to English, and there it's like it's it's just difficult to know exactly where does each word go in the English so that this makes sense. Because if you get it wrong, the insinuation is that Jesus is still suffering through the through the body, which is his church, because he didn't quite finish the suffering on Calvary. And that is not at all what this verse is teaching. The problem that I have is that some in an effort to make that point, in an effort to say Jesus is not still suffering. And I hate to say it, but especially amongst Reformed theologians, in an effort to make sure their readers and their listeners understand Jesus is not still suffering, they go too far. They go too far. Because what's the consequence if you say, if you say, this is not saying at all that you are filling up anything that's lacking in the afflictions of Christ? If you take the verse, turn it on its head and go, not what Paul meant, well then suffering can't be for others. It always has to be about your faith, about your fruit, or about your functionality. If you go too far and say, no, 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 Christ's all done suffering, which I agree with. If you make it that, that his suffering was so efficacious and complete that nothing can be added to it, what else can we conclude other than our own suffering is meaningless? And then what interest would Jesus have in us as we're suffering? The task before me was to make sure we absolutely understood that Jesus did all of the suffering that he needed to do. Nothing was left. He drank the dregs of that cup at Calvary. While making absolutely certain, we understand that he still cares what's happening to us. Now, maybe I'm uh, straining at gnats here, but do you see the connection between this statement and this consequence. Here's the statement. Jesus is completely done suffering. He's not afflicted anymore at all. If that's true, how can he care what I'm going through? If I care for you and you're afflicted, I of necessity have to be afflicted with you. Does that, you understand? He if the spirit is groaning with groaning too deep for words on my behalf when I'm praying, it must be that God has a sympathetic heart, that Jesus has a sympathetic heart for us in the midst of our suffering. He does care, but without adding anything to the atoning sacrifice. <clears throat> Something of a mystery here. I believe that what Paul is saying 
is that afflictions have an evangelical role. Persecution tends to result in the growth of the church. Amen? Historically, those in power attempt to stifle Christianity. The more they attempt to stifle it, the more it like squirts out and takes root and spreads out. It's like getting rid of dandelions by blowing on them. <laughs> it doesn't work. So Paul suffers. And as he suffers, the reality is more and more and more people come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's what we see unfolding in the, in the narrative in Acts. So Paul is in effect saying this, I believe. <clears throat> I am filling up what has been lacking in my part of suffering for the sake of the church. Jesus is all done suffering for, for the sake of the church. Okay? I'm not. And he has appointed suffering as a means of growing the church. So it's not an atoning suffering. It's a, it's a testimony. It's a declaration. My suffering adds nothing to Christ's work. At the same time, it fills up what wasn't accomplished by him coming, living, dying and rising again. What wasn't accomplished by that? Well, not everybody has heard the gospel message. So we participate with Christ through suffering in a way similar to him to expand the gospel influence. So <clears throat> 25, he says, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. He's rejoicing in his suffering because he knows he's been made a minister of the gospel through and through his ministry is making the gospel fully known. Suffering does not diminish the gospel opportunities. It increases them. Does that make sense? I mean, it doesn't. But does the words that I just said make sense? Okay, 26. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed in his saints. So he's rejoicing in his suffering because he knows, according to 26, new saints are being brought into the fold because of what Paul is enduring. Does that make sense? All right. So that's, that's like saying, instead of being convinced that the gospel is nonsense when the lost and dying world sees Christians suffering... Instead of being convinced it's nonsense, they're somehow actually convinced that it's authentic and real. Because God uses the foolish things in the world to shame the wise, and he uses the weak things in the world to shame the strong. This is why, like, church growth books, I'm always like, really? What? Like, you can't, let's say this joint blows up, and we fill every seed in here. And I'm like, guys, we need to plant immediately. And we plant a couple of other churches in there, and they blow up. You know what's going to happen. Somebody at the SBC is going to ring my phone and go, how'd you do it? Let's write a book. Thank God we are at no risk of that occurring, right? <laughs> but you can't package church growth because it doesn't make any sense from a human perspective. 27, to them God chose to make uh, sorry, make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So he's rejoicing in his suffering because he knows Christ is being portrayed to lost people by what Paul is suffering. This is a little easier to understand, right? Because a vivid 
picture of the suffering Savior is painted when Christians endure bad treatment. When martyrs are dying, it's like, and that's kind of what it was like when Jesus was crucified. It's vivid, stark contrast. 28, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So he's rejoicing in his suffering because he knows that the church is being matured, increased, encouraged, and edified by the shame Paul is bearing for Christ's sake. This makes no sense either, that other Christians are not discouraged when they see someone willing to suffer, but in the providence of God, they're actually made more firm in their faith when we witness a brother or sister patiently enduring. Now, saying those words, it's like, that sounds foolish. But the reality is, if you've watched somebody go through cancer and die, and they do it with a lovely, Christian, yielded disposition, it's a, it's a profound testimony to the rest of us who like lay awake at night with some new pain, being like, is it a tumor? Am I on my way out, right? But then I think, I remember watching, some of you will remember watching Darlene Rogers, right? Patiently, faithfully, yielded, right to the end. And it encourages my heart to remember that. It tells me, okay, it's possible, it can be done. I can do it. His strength is perfect and available to me. It's the opposite of what you would think. So when they drag us out in front of other Christians, like some of you might, never mind, I'm not going to say that. They drag me out in front of all of you and go, you better recant the faith or we're going to kill him. And you watch me die willing to be killed for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ. It's not going to have the effect on you that they think it's going to have. This is a morbid hypothetical, so pardon me. I apologize for that. But the reality is, if you watch me go through that, suffer that fate, you will actually, through the Holy Spirit, be strengthened in your faith. What? But it's reality. History proves it. For this I toil, 29, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. And that's how it's possible, right? This is not me gritting my teeth and, and white knuckling it and pulling it off. This is Jesus working through his Holy Spirit which in, who indwells me. That's where the power comes from. Uh, <clears throat> all right. So that's like a review of last week, kind of. 2-1. I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and those at Laodicea and all who have seen me, who have not seen me rather face to face. That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So I mentioned last week that Paul, this is not a review, I'm just hearkening back, okay? Review's over. I mentioned last week that Paul uses this word mysteries. Uh, a few times. So if you look at 26, look, look at verse 26, do you see it? 27, do you see it? And then here again in verse 2, do you see it? And then it's also in 3, but it, it's translated hidden, right? In whom are hidden all the treasures. Um, this isn't as exciting as we might want it to be. 
If you're like, ooh, I like mysteries. What's this one? Well, in pagan religions, <clears throat> you're always going to find secret insights given only to a select few. Right? We see this in cults throughout history and even still today. So from David Koresh in Waco to the Pentecostal prophets from Joseph Smith, Brigham Young to the Pope. You've got these key players who have special insights that nobody else has got. And they use that to manufacture authenticity for themselves. Um, as long as there have been false religions, there have been people claiming to have the secret sauce, the inside track, and, and visions which explains things. So, wait, visions don't explain. Visions which explain things. So, it, like think tarot cards, Ouija boards, crystal balls, mushrooms, DMT, ayahuasca, weed, like these things have for, forever been used as a means of gaining that insight that nobody else has been able to give you. If you want to see the mysteries unfolded, these are the means. And things were no different. Well, they weren't much different in Paul's time. Bad actors were all too ready to invade the baby church with their Christianized versions of philosophy, pharmacology, and ritual. Uh, which is why, again, I love this picture, if it's still up. This, this infant plant that has just sprung up, and then you got the spiky, scary thing next to it with the, 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 the webbing running between the two. It paints a vivid picture of this baby church, which is constantly under threat of being inundated by I'm talking about us, uh, inundated by worldly philosophy and empty religion. Like, we're always at risk. I could come up here. If you think I can't, you have no idea how much of me has to get crucified Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. You have no idea because I could come up here and tell stories and, and spin a sermon and we would get this place filled up. I promise you I could do it. Not because I'm attractive, obviously I'm not, but because I know how to do it. I know how to play on people's emotions and get them eating out of my hand. I know how to do that. That's not why we're here. So I'm not going to come up here and act like I've got the secret. You want to hear it? 500 bucks. Once you've given 500, you'll reach silver status. We're not doing that. For, for example of what I'm talking about, though, look with me at Acts 8. Acts 8, we'll pick it up in verse 9. I'm going to go ahead and go because it's 20 till already. There was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. 
Now, when the apostles of Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them. If I can just interject, uh, something substantially different between early church and today church. There was, in order to give unction to the apostolic teaching, there was this directed connection between the administration of the Holy Spirit's blessing and the apostolic involvement. That is not the case anymore. All those who are in Christ Jesus have the Holy Spirit indwelling them. You don't need me or Cecil or Rick or Matt or Lee to come lay hands on you or the Pope or Benny Hinn or whoever. So this is different. Anyway, all right. So they laid their hands on them, verse 17, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw the Spirit was giving through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Whomever was infiltrating the churches at Colossae and Laodicea was likely insinuating, probably, that they had some special revelation that made them someone great, someone worth listening to. And it's reasonable to conclude that the idea of some mystery concerning Christianity was being advertised by bad actors in an effort to lure the church away from simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. There's a lot. I just said a lot. And I think if you're anything like me, you're like, you tune in for two or three, see if it has anything to do with you and tune back out. So I'm doing the best I can here. All right. That's what I think was going on at Colossae. And I didn't come up with that on my own. Obviously, the commentators agree and are helpful there. Here's the fun part. You're like, ooh. Paul invokes the language of pagans using his signature irony in order to make his point. So verse 26, back in chapter 1. What is the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed in the saints? What's the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed in the saints? Oh, he doesn't leave us hanging. Next verse, 27. To whom did God choose to make the riches of this mystery known? And he doesn't bury the answer. He gets right after it. 26, the mystery is revealed to the saints, to all Christians. So it's like if I come up here and I say, hey, I don't know if you've seen The Sixth Sense, but he's dead the whole time. Enjoy the movie. I've ruined it for you. You're not going to enjoy the movie anymore. If I say, hey... Uh, I don't know if you've seen the the M. Night Shyamalan movie, The Village, but it's actually taking place in modern day. They've just cordoned off this area where they all act like it's the 1800s and the adults all know it and the kids don't. That's, but enjoy the movie. I've just removed the mystery. So Paul says, mystery, Uh, it's Jesus and everyone knows. There's nothing hidden that that needs to be revealed here. So if you look at, uh, just jump back up to verse 25, the purpose of Paul's ministry is to make Christ fully known. And then jump down to 28. Him we proclaim, warning, warning. Yeah, it's, 
Not a select few, not a privileged elite. He, they're teaching everyone with all wisdom, not just the parts they could afford, so that all might be mature in Christ. So Paul doesn't only use this language in Colossians. He does a similar thing in Ephesians, but here he, we get a little bit of clarity. So in Ephesians 1.7, he says, in Jesus, in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. In him, you, listen, because I'm not talking to everybody else in the room, I'm only talking to you. In him, you have redemption through his blood. That's you. In him, you, who whatever your name is, have redemption in the blood of Jesus Christ, which was shed for you, not for us, not for the church, for you. He knew you by name. He had you in mind as his blood was being spilled, right? Uh, in him, we have the redemption of his blood. I'm sorry, redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. That's you. That's not Frank's trespasses, except it is you, Frank, right? It's you, your trespasses forgiven <clears throat> according to the riches of his grace toward you. You have the riches of Jesus Christ's grace lavished on you in all wisdom and insight. So it wasn't a mistake. He knew what he was doing. He didn't die for you. It, like You didn't accidentally kind of get caught up in the net. He wanted you, he got you, if you're a child of God. And he did it with wisdom and insight, according to uh, verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will. What's the mystery of his will? Well, I'll tell you, it's real simple. The mystery is that which is concealed from the Gentiles in the Old Testament. So what was concealed from the Gentiles in the Old Testament? Well, they weren't allowed to participate in Jewish worship. Why? Because they were unclean. Ephesians 1.9, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things under heaven and things on earth, means that that which was hidden from the Gentiles in the Old Testament was revealed to them in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Guess what we all probably would be by ancestry. So that which was a mystery is now revealed. It belongs to us. It's not just for them anymore. It's for us. It's for you. For this reason, this is Ephesians 3.1, for this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, 
which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has been revealed now to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles, this is him, I mean, this is word for word. If you want to go look, Ephesians 3, 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So it's not just ironic speech in Colossians where he says the mystery, ooh, it was a mystery. It was withheld from some. But listen to me, it's not any more. And anybody that tells you they've got the deeper knowledge, they've got the hidden insight is lying to you. There's nothing you need to know about Jesus you can't find right here. You don't need me. You don't need anybody. Now, it's helpful if you have somebody you trust that can explain it to you. Amen. Right? <laughs> Shouldn't have picked that up. That was a huge mistake. All right. God did not reveal the gospel to all people before Jesus came. This is a huge part of the reason that Paul is in chains as he's writing Colossians. The Jews didn't like the fact that Christianity, Christians, were absconding with the exclusivity of Judaism, right? Jews didn't like that Christians were going, this is all ours now, and we're taking it and we're doing something else with it. They didn't like that. I don't like it when cult leaders do it with Christianity. So I can kind of understand. The difference is... Jesus was the Messiah, and he did open the floodgates to the Gentiles. So what the church was doing was exactly what the promised Messiah commanded. Amazingly enough, the Gentiles, unlike the Jews for the most part, loved hearing the gospel. Loved it. Like almost couldn't get enough of it. You read the book of Acts, study Paul's missionary journeys, and you'll notice a remarkable fact. He would go into these pagan cities, proclaim the gospel, and people who had never set foot in Jerusalem, never heard the Ten Commandments, didn't give a flip who Moses was, would hear this gospel message and be undone by it. Come to saving faith in a person, Jesus, who they had never met, just like us, right? And then the Jews would show up, not from that city, from another city, from Thessalonica or wherever they were following Paul from persecuting. They would show up, find whichever Gentiles in the area hadn't believed the gospel, get everybody together, get them all riled up, start persecuting the Christians, and Paul would split. So the church would get established. The church would start shaking things up in town, bringing the end of the sex trade, the drug trade, the booze trade, the sorcery trade, the robbery trade. And then uh, people involved in those trades didn't like it. So you had Gentile persecution and Jewish persecution of the Christian church. But I think it's worse that the Jews who were hunting Paul would show up, stir up the remaining people in town, and get them incited to persecution. 
I think that's worse. And here's why. Jesus says it this way in Matthew 23, 13. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut up the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourself neither enter nor allow others to go in. Jesus said that. All right, so I'm building a case, albeit a weirdly interrupted one and my own personality being at work here, but I'm building a case for you to understand unequivocally, with no doubt in your mind, that when Paul says mystery, he's being ironic. That there's, there's nothing concealed from you that you need me or anybody else to reveal to you in order to come to full saving apprehension and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Are you with me on that? Okay, so here's the deal. The scribes and Pharisees who didn't want Christians telling Gentiles that God would love and receive them. And, and all right, so, so there, there are these, these scribes and Pharisees that, that didn't want Christianity growing because the idea of God being accessible was anathema to them. The reason that the scribes and Pharisees didn't want anything to do with God, yet still wanted exclusive rights to him, is because there must be some profit in having that arrangement. There must be something for me to gain if I can pretend like the gospel is hidden, but it's been revealed to me, so come on, I'll give it to you. It must be that Christianity was undoing some kind of a racket wherein people were able to make money off of religion. Because Christianity wasn't costing the Jews anything in any other way. To claim that scriptural revelation is not for the common man but for the elite is reprehensible. The issue Paul's confronting in Colossae is really simple. Is there some secret, privileged, special information? Is there some peculiar, classified, mysterious piece of the gospel that only the educated elite have access to? Yes or no? Yes or no? No. All right, five of you think no. If that's true, that there is not some special, peculiar, elite, top secret part of the gospel that only I can give you, then that means the gospel is as simple to understand and believe as what you've already heard from this pulpit, from reading your Bible. Agreed? Because someone's trying to muddy the water. Someone is insinuating that things aren't that simple. Someone is trying to convince you that grace isn't that free, mercy isn't that available. Christ isn't that accessible, God isn't that loving, the Holy Spirit isn't that present, and Jesus isn't that sufficient. It's happening in your life right now, whether you realize it or not. I mean, welcome to church in 2023. Here's what you get at Springfield Baptist. Oh. Here's what you get at Springfield Baptist. Ready? More about Jesus would I know. More of his grace to others show. More of his saving fullness see. More of his love who died for me. More about Jesus let me learn. 
more of his holy will discern. Spirit of God, my teacher be, showing the things of Christ to me. More about Jesus from his word, holding communion with my Lord, hearing his voice in every line, make, making each faithful saying mine. More about Jesus on his throne, riches and glory all his own. More of his kingdom's sure increase, more of his coming Prince of Peace, because we know this. Nothing else is going to encourage you. So there's really no point in me standing up here proclaiming anything else to you but the gospel. I don't have a fresh word. I don't have a way to polish it up and make it more intriguing. I don't have secret insight. I've got the same gospel week after week after week. And I know I joke, and I think it's hilarious. Some people probably don't, but I do, to say I only have three sermons. But I really only have one. It's what is this passage telling us about Jesus Christ? And what Paul is trying to do is make sure that the Colossians and make sure that the Springfield Baptistians know there is nothing beyond understanding the person and work of Jesus Christ. And everything that we need to understand him has already been revealed. No one else is going to knit our hearts together in love. How do you grow a church? Well, you got to have people that love each other. No one else is going to knit our hearts together in love. No one else is going to bring us to full assurance. This is in the passage that I just read. 2, 1 through 5. No one else is going to knit our hearts together in love. No one else is going to bring us to full assurance. No one else is going to bring us understanding. No one else is going to be the hope of glory. Nobody else has all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And we really love Jesus, right? We love him because he loved us first. We, he loved us when we were in the throes and entangled in immorality. He loved us when our dads and moms didn't love us that well. He loved us when our friends turned out to not really be our friends. He, he loved us when we were drunks, adulterers, in the pig slop, when we were Pharisees, right? A lot of us did, like I did a trip as a Pharisee a couple of years there, fresh into Reformed theology. I started using it as a cudgel to beat people with. He loved me anyway. But bless God. Loved me through that. He loved us when we were tripping on acid, high as kites, destroying our marriages. He loved us when we were robbers, prostitutes, drug dealers. He loved us when we were liars and cheats. He loved us and he didn't leave us there. Delivered us out of that. This is all we have. We just have this gospel that says, I once was lost and now I'm found. And it's all we need. We don't need anything else other than to be reminded of it. He rescued us in that condition, out of that condition. Snatched us out of sin, rescued us out of immorality, rescued us out of loneliness, rescued us out of booze and drugs and porn and adultery and deception and cheating. Rescued us out of our mess cleansed us of all unrighteousness. I washed it all off of you. All of it. Not one spot or blemish left. And then he seated us at the table with him and the Father and the Holy Spirit. That's the mystery of Jesus Christ. I mean, the mystery is why would he do that? Well, because he loved you. So what I want to do is magnify him. What I want to do is magnify him. I want to make much of him and not much of me. I, I want to share the gospel with a lost and dying world and bear fruit in keeping with repentance and faith, right? We want to go home someday and be with him forever, right? You want to die and be with Jesus? 
Well, the alternative is not attractive, trust me. Uh, I just think it's not any more complicated than that. So it's like week after week, we come into this place or we gather in one another's homes. And we just remind each other of this stuff. We, re we rehearse gospel truth. Like I haven't said anything this morning most of you in this room didn't already know. Amen? So we, we're, we, come, we, we sing songs we've sung dozens of times before. And sometimes you're like, oh, this is terrible. The bass is too loud. I can't even concentrate. <laughs> and sometimes you're like, I don't like that song. But, but we keep showing up. We just keep doing it. And nobody in here is like, oh, I can't wait to hear from James this morning. He is, he's so insightful. And and funny. Nobody thinks that. We're here because we believe this and we want to hear from it, right? And sometimes people are going to come in uh, to visit and they're going to watch us and they're going to be like, what a bunch of weirdos and that'll be it. And they won't come back. Sometimes people are going to come in and they're going to watch us and they're going to be like, yep, these are my people. And they're going to join with us. And sometimes people are going to be with us for a season and then they're going to move on. We're not here for any other reason than we believe the Bible and what it says about God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit, and we want to worship him. That's why we're here. And everything we do is done with that in view. So let the world try and capture us with empty philosophy. Let them try. Anything beyond Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, I'm like, I'm not buying it. The simple, pure gospel is plenty to keep me occupied at least 52 times a year with the rest of you. At least. Now, how about how crazy is it that most of us probably spend a couple hours throughout the week studying this book, trying to get to know him better, trying to understand more fully who he is and seeing our lives get changed bit by bit by bit by bit over the course of time. We're made more and more like him. I don't need anything else. Amen? So we tell one another the truth. We confront sin. We comfort affliction. We help one another. We remind one another of what really matters. That's why we do it together because he commanded it. When We need this. We need the one another stuff. We try to bless the community around us. We do, right? We try to magnify Jesus in front of other people so that they can get to know him, they can see him. And, and there's no mystery peddling going on here. We're a bunch of people that got saved by a really simple message and love to remind one another of that fact. That's it. That's what we're doing. We're glorifying God together. No mystery. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And uh, not, just the, not just the truth of it, but the simplicity of it. You could have made this as complicated as, as the ceremonial law in Exodus. You could have made Christianity infinitely more complicated than anything we find in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. But instead... Instead, you stripped away everything that might distract us from who Jesus is and what he did and have now called us to believe and repent and to do it together. We thank you for the simplicity of the message. We thank you that we can't be easily led astray, that there is no great mystery, that nothing is reserved for the rich, but that all people everywhere need to repent.
It's so simple, and we love you for that, and we praise you for that. In Jesus' name, God's people said, amen.